If you're treating veterans with PTSD, VA's National Center for PTSD can help. The PTSD Consultation Program offers free expert consultation and resources to providers. We won't ask you to fill out any forms, and we respond to requests within a day. To learn more on this easy-to-use program, visit ptsd.va.gov consult. Again, that's ptsd.va.gov consult. Summer is here. Time to fire up the grill and raise your new custom motorized shades from Blinds.com. Save 40% site-wide right now during our 4th of July spectacular. We've got everything from Roman and roller shades to shutters, curtains, and more. Plus outdoor shades to keep your deck and patio cool for summer hangouts and backyard barbecues. Talk to a Blinds.com design expert today and get samples shipped directly to you, fast and free. Need help with measuring and installation? We've got you covered there too. And there's no need for an in-home consultation just to get a quote. You always get upfront pricing right on our website. With Blinds.com, you never have to sacrifice when it comes to style, service, or selection. Plus, you can rest easy with our 100% satisfaction guarantee. Shop Blinds.com's 4th of July Spectacular happening now through July 5th and save 40% site-wide, plus doorbusters. 40% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views. Today we have one of my employers and a partner at Dunlop Bennett and Ludwig, Tom Dunlop. We're gonna talk a little bit about aviation law. And before that, we just wanna say, hey Tom, thanks for coming on to the show. And why don't you uh, introduce yourself and tell the folks a little bit about you, uh, your, sure, your bio. Yep, thanks for having me. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm an attorney. I've worked principally in IT and government contracts law. Uh, I was an Army officer a long time ago, and that's when I started in aviation. I learned to fly about 20 years ago, purchased my first plane eventually, a Cirrus SR-22, flew that for nine years. Along the way, I've owned flight schools. Uh, as part of the flight school ownership of aircraft, was an airport commissioner at KGYO near Dulles Airport for nine years, and I was the operations chair of that airport commission and helped design the first instrument approach and helped implement the first remote tower uh, in the United States, uh, run, run by a company called Saab. Uh, the FAA is in the process of potentially decommissioning it, but it's a fantastic, it's been a fantastic experiment. I've been off the airport commission for a couple of years now, uh, as a result of time commitment issues, but, um, have a fairly significant background in aviation. And I'm a panel attorney for AOPA and have been representing airmen, uh, air uh, carriers, uh, cargo carriers, um, mechanics, AMPs, all kinds of folks in aviation-related issues, contracts, FAA uh, disputes, violations, all that kind of stuff for, for about 20-some years. So like the Mounties, it looks like I found my man on aviation law. That's excellent. It's funny, in a, in a small world kind of thing, did you ever work with General Merlin uh, at Dulles? Uh, no, I didn't. So I was at KJYO, which is a... a Executive Airport, Leesburg Executive. It's five miles from Dulles from its transponder, but we don't really interface with them that much, except to the extent that you're flying there and you're uh, dealing with air traffic from Dulles and getting routed around. Okay. Uh, but I never really dealt with the airport administration in Dulles. I have landed there when there's 
before we had an instrument approach, we had to land at Dulles if the weather was bad or below minimums at Leesburg and park our aircraft there, pay a huge fee, get an Uber uh, back to your car, your hangar at Leesburg, and then drive over the next day and fly your plane a mile or two away to Leesburg. Big pain in the butt. But the instrument <laughs> approach at Leesburg changed all that, which is great. That is great. Um, I think it sounds like it, at least if you were a it recreational is, pilot. That was probably too much information. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Well, let's take it to the basics of aviation law, literally from a 30 or 39,000 foot view. What, what is sort of the basic precepts of aviation law? I guess, uh, I guess we can start with the airspace of a nation. I, I imagine states don't have their own airspace. It's all federal at that point. So it is all federal. So it, 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 when you say aviation law, it's kind of a huge, huge thing. So if you look up aviation lawyers on Google, most of what you're going to find are plaintiff's lawyers who deal in aircraft accidents. Right. You're not really going to find about 80% of the aviation side of aviation law is not really involved in the aircraft accident per se. I mean, it could be depending on what the accident is and how it happened. But aviation law includes air safety. It includes airspace, right? Which is what you're talking about. Routes, white levels, air corridors. Uh, airspace above airports, which we can talk about. It involves aircraft operations, so crew rest, runway operations, um, minimum uh, time between annual inspections for aircraft, all that stuff. It involves accidents, which is a huge swath of the internet. It involves economic regulation about the business aspects of air travel, like what carriers can fly from where to where, and there are a whole bunch of international treaties about that. Uh, and it involves uh, economic regulation about airline bankruptcies. Uh, probably don't know this, but each engine on aircraft, and we dealt with this for a client of ours, is mortgaged separately, especially in smaller carriers, uh, from the body of the aircraft itself. <laughs> so there's a lot of micro details in that. And it involves environmental issues, even more so in the last few years than in the past. So, so aviation law is really a huge thing. It's not um, just the airspace, but if we want to talk about the airspace, happy to do that. Yeah, let's start. Let's start with the airspace and work our way down. Sure. So, so the airspace in the U.S. is managed by the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, as you know. In Europe, it's uh, ESA, European Union Aviation Safety Agency, and um, in the U.K., it's the CAA, and then in Australia, I think it's the CAS or something. I can't remember what it is. But basically, every nation has its own regulation authority. They coordinate with each other. They pass aircraft from one to the other. In the U.S., if you take off from Leesburg Airport, you are immediately in the airspace of Dulles. So to give you an idea of how airspace works, basically every major airport has some kind of airspace over it, either Class A, Class B, Class C, or sometimes Class D airspace. Dulles is a big airport. It has Class B airspace. It's basically an upside-down layer cake. So right at Dulles Airport at the runways, it goes to the ground. And as you go out further out, that same Class B airspace has a floor. So I think at Dulles, the floors of the next layer is 2,500 feet. And then the next layer above that, there's a 7,000-foot floor or something like that. But it's basically an upside-down layer cake of airspace that's owned by that airport. And there are different regulations depending on what class of airspace it is, whether it's controlled or uncontrolled whether you have to be cleared into the airspace or not cleared. And what happens if you accidentally take off from Leesburg, for example, and you bust through the Class B airspace at Dulles without permission, get in trouble. So it's important to, to kind of understand that. Um, and that's, I mean, there's a lot to airspace, but that's it in a nutshell. 
Okay. And uh, does a nation have, is it like maritime law where you have an exclusive economic zone or an exclusive, is it like 200 miles from your border or something like that uh, that, that determines a nation's airspace, I guess, uh, east, west, south, or north of its uh, borders? So in the U.S., uh, just it depends on what we're talking about. Um, some countries claim, you've probably heard this with maritime law, some countries claim a larger space than other countries, and there are international treaties about this. Uh, off the top of my head, uh, the airspace boundary for the U.S., I, I'd have to look it up. I don't know off the top of my head. Around, but you know, ballpark it. Is it like 12 miles, 200 miles? It's about, uh, well, so it goes from, so first airspace is three-dimensional, something we didn't talk about. Right. Uh, it starts at the ground, airport by airport, and it basically goes up to 60,000 feet. Um, but, you know, most, you're not going to fly above 45,000 feet generally. Right. Uh, if we're talking about airspace, nation airspace, uh, let's see. But that 60,000 feet thing is is important because that apparently is, I think some people call it the Canaan line, where they think that, you know, the stratosphere ends or whatever. Um, and because satellites and things like that are much higher and airspace doesn't include and in, doesn't go in perpetuity. It does have an end space. So in other words, you mean space, airspace above 60,000 feet, airspace in space? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Exactly. Yeah. So... And I'm not uh, a space law expert by any stretch of the imagination. So um, I don't know if the airspace is above 60,000 feet. I can't off the top of my head tell you very much about space law treaties and those kinds of things. Yeah, I think uh, I think there is some, but I'm not sure that anyone is really a space law expert because I've talked to a lot of space law experts and there's a lot of we're not sure and it is about treaty. Uh, and, you know, the, the one big issue that everyone ignores is, you know, how, how do the laws of Earth apply not on Earth? <laughs> but, but as long as I guess everyone agrees to it, there's uh, I guess that's what we call the, the, the hook theory. Anyway, uh, enough about that. Let's just assume 60,000 feet ish is 60,000 feet, 12 nautical miles. Um, and there's 200. So this is what was a little confusing. I was trying to remember. There's a 200 mile exclusive economic zone. Uh, from the coast. So there's two pieces. Airspace sovereignty applies 12 miles from the borders of the U.S. And then the exclusive economic zone applies 200 miles outside the U.S. So in other words, you're not going to be in controlled airspace more than 12 miles from a border, but you will be in an economic zone where they have the right to determine what aircraft pass through that zone. Right. So it's very similar to maritime law, if not directly extrapolated and just sort of copied over, even if it doesn't. Uh, I mean, I, I guess this would mean cargo planes uh, have a further subject, uh, you know, subject to the jurisdiction further than, say, a, uh, you know, a transportation plane. But I guess it's all commercial, isn't it? I mean, it's. it's yeah, they're all treated the same way from an airspace perspective. Yeah, I guess so military is the only thing that's different, and that's probably one of those classes that you were talking about that, that doesn't apply to most airports. Well, no, so if you're a military aircraft, you still have to live with class A, B, C, D, E, and all the airspace rules apply, all the civilian airspace rules apply to you. What we're talking about is something like a MOA or, uh, so there's military airspace in the United States, mm -hmm. and there are military aircraft. Military aircraft have to live with all the civilian airspace rules. And civilian aircraft, if they're flying near a military 
airspace have to live with the military rules with respect to that airspace. If that makes sense. I think it does. Um, okay. okay. So uh, with regards to aviation law, uh, you you mentioned that there was a European agencies, Australian agencies, I and then every country. I imagine that is there a, is there a African Union equivalent? Is there an Asian Union, or does it go country by country in, in on those continents? So it, it depends. Um, Africa is a Africa is a really hard one. It's a patchwork. So in Europe, I can say that each the EASA, which is European Unions based. The EASA, which is the European Union, essentially has one agency that is unified with the exception of the UK, like everything else the UK did. And of course, the UK has Brexited anyway, but they maintained their own civil aviation authority even when they were part of the European Union, just like they maintained the pound. Mm -hmm. um, Africa is divided into FERS, flight information regions. So those are essentially, and some African nations, as you may know, don't get along with each other. But... Um, Essentially, each region of Africa is managed by these flight information regions. And ICAO, so you've probably heard of ICAO and ICAO designators before. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. Okay, so that's the International Civil Aviation Authority. So when you see a K in front of an airport, you know it's an American airport. Okay. And if you see, uh, so you've seen on your baggage tags, uh, KIAD. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So KIAD is not the U.S. designator, that's the ICAO, that's the ICAO designator for Dulles Airport, which stands for, and when you land in, uh, oh, what is, what's another, what's B the international designation? BWI. BWI, well, KBWI, I was thinking, but even foreign countries. So if you land it, what, what is the, what is London? Heathrow. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what their ICAO designator is. Oh. Uh, but anyway, the K up front means it's a U.S. airport. If you land at Heathrow, it's going to say on your luggage tag, E-G-L-L. If you land at Gatwick, it's going to say E-G-K-K, because every airport in the U.K. starts with E. Every airport in the U.S. starts with K. Um, and all of those things are ICAO. So ICAO is, is not a regulatory body as such. In other words, it can impose laws or rules on the FAA or the EASA or any aviation authority. But it does provide an administrative um, structure, if you will, yeah. uh, for airports. And when you have a place like Africa, where you have countries at war with each other and they don't agree on things, you end up with these areas that have very little true flight control or flight regulation. But the ICAO provides flight information to aircraft traveling through or over those countries. The exception might be South Africa. And uh, countries that are more industrialized that will kind of provide that kind of support and have their own aviation authorities. But for the most part, Africa is a pretty big patchwork of information regions. It just occurred to me as you're talking that this might be awkward or maybe it's not. But like, how about a non-country country, sort of like Taiwan? Like, uh, you know, that it's obviously an industrialized island. It's part of China, but not part of China. Um, is it, does it get its own designation for the purposes of international transportation, uh, and just ignore the fact that there's the, the Chinese government still claims it's, uh, you know, sort of a part of its territorial boundaries just, just to make, um, travel and commerce easier. So as you know, and I can get political all you want, I'm not a huge fan of, of the Chinese government, <laughs> um, <laughs> as an organization, 
Uh, so Taiwan politically isn't part of the ICAO, but they do have their own civil, civil aeronautics, the CAA. They have their own aviation authority. And they do everything the FAA does. Uh, and they meet ICAO standards because they're, they voluntarily decided to do that. Uh, but they're not part of ICAO. Okay. So they voluntarily comply and everyone's like, okay, good, close enough. We don't want to cause any trouble. Uh, I imagine it's similar with places like Kurdistan or, I mean, I, I can't, you know, I don't want to necessarily get into the specifics, but there, there's more than one country that's not quite a country. Yeah. Kyrgyzstan, I have no freaking idea. Um, I, I assume Kyrgyzstan. No, no, Kur Kurdistan, not Kyrgyzstan. Kur oh, Kurdistan. I'm yeah. oh, sorry. Uh, I have no idea about Kurdistan. Okay. I, I don't know. Uh, Fair I enough. Can, yeah. Fair if enough. If you do, I mean, feel free. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> no. I don't know that many people are taking off or landing in Kurdistan that I know, and I've never run into it as an aviation thing. I've dealt with Australia a fair amount. I've dealt with uh, the European Union a fair amount, and I've dealt with some of the Caribbean islands a fair amount, but never Kurdistan. What about, Canada. What about Cuba? I mean, I, they have their own aviation authority as far as I know. We are not allowed to land there. Um, so when you leave the U.S., so another thing just to rewind a little bit, there's a huge difference between commercial aviation, military aviation, and GA, general aviation. Uh, commercial aviation, air cargo carriers, passenger transports, um, anything that's operating uh, as a, a doing commercial stuff. General aviation is stuff like me flying my family around in my plane. Right. It's stuff like uh, a charter pilot is, is considered general aviation, generally speaking. So somebody who flies a Learjet or a, a, a really rich guy, that really rich guy is operating as a general aviation aircraft. Uh, so there's different rules for different types of aircraft and where they can go and where they can land and, uh, and that kind of thing. We can that's, say that's we can first. say Logan Roy since he's made make believe. Logan Roy from Succession. No, I don't. I haven't watched that. Show. Oh my goodness, Tom! You would love that. I think anyway. Uh, all right. So, I've heard. I've heard it's good. I, just, I haven't seen. Well, just if you need so a, if, if you need a straw Cuba man. The, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was going to say Cuba has the IACC, so they have Instituto de Aeronautica Civil de Cuba. Okay. Just so they just do have their own authority. Excellent. Just for future reference, if you want to use a straw man bad guy, you can say Logan Roy since he's fictitious. And if you want to use a straw person bad country, we use Jeff Sikistan on this show. Uh, uh, okay, Jeff Sikistan. Yeah, as the Slow ultimate pirates, pirate state uh, that takes anything for money. Uh, absolutely. It's like Wakanda, but without morals. Um, so gotcha. that's Jeff Sikistan. Right. Um, all right. Now, I know this is a hard thing to extrapolate. Um, but how do you think the laws of aviation on Earth can can be extrapolated or might be used for space? So uh, I think so. There's a couple of things. Um, so space laws, as far as I know, there are a couple of things that apply. The there's the, an Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which I'm sure you know all about, probably mm -hmm. much more than me. And um, there's a treaty on principles governing the activity of states in the exploration and use of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies. Basically, there's a couple of treaties. From what I understand, not everybody's following these treaties right. through the letter of the law. Um, but uh, the, my understanding of all that's covered right now, period, is exploration and use. And 
It's basically space is free to be explored and used by everybody and not subject to any sovereignty, which will be interesting when we start landing on the moon and building bases. So right. that goes. Uh, non-armament. So you're not supposed to arm anything. You can't place weapons of mass destruction on space or celestial bodies. And then uh, each state that launches a space object retains jurisdiction over their own space object um, that they launch. And astronauts are regarded as, this is my favorite thing that I looked up before your show, astronauts are envoys of mankind in outer space. If a spacecraft lands in a state other than launching state, the state must safely and promptly return the spacecraft. We'll see how that goes. Um, anyway, my advice is don't accidentally land your spacecraft in Russia or China right now, but um, right. setting that aside. So how do aviation laws apply? So first, I think as space gets more and more crowded, and I understand there's a lot of issues with space jam, and as people start sending stuff to the moon and building bases, we're going to have to create rules and regulations around airspace. And they're going to have to be something similar to what we have, uh, the FAA has with regards to an upside down layer cake over places where people land their spaceships, spacecraft, whatever they're called, where they land their stuff. Uh, we're going to also have to create rules around the economic exploitation of space, which what I understand, there really isn't anything right now. Um, and there are economic zones in aviation. And we're going to have to have rules about air safety. So organizations like um, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, so Blue Origin and SpaceX, they're going to have to be private civil aviation rules around space flight. And there aren't any, as I understand it, once they get above 60,000 feet, it's kind of anybody's game. Right. Uh, so, you know, and ultimately environmental too, right? Because anything you do in space, I think, is magnified uh, significantly by virtue of it being in space. Because if stuff falls out of the sky, uh, it can really mess stuff up on the ground. Absolutely. As I would so eloquently put it. So, anyway, so those are my and, thoughts. Yeah. And other stuff in space. space. What's that? And other stuff in space. I mean, so little pieces of space debris can cause catastrophic damages on satellites and the International yep. Space Station. So items like, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, when you were talking, it, it, it strikes me that the Chinese spy balloon, which I think was around 40,000 feet, if it was above 60,000 feet, I don't know if even such te technology is possible or exists, but if it was above 60,000 feet, I suppose we would have had to have returned it. Uh, I mean, technically, if it was a space object and it was coming from space, I mean, yeah, technically above 60,000 feet, the FAA doesn't regulate it. It's not technically our sovereign airspace. Well, it's an interesting hypothetical. It, it wasn't, so I guess it didn't come into play. But uh, maybe there are. We just don't know about it. Who knows? But uh, that, that's that's something that could go on a uh, on a space law test or for Space Court Foundation. If you folks are listening, that could be something for Star Aid Decisis to uh, to on, on their their little uh, Law and Order sort of show uh, that they do, which is a lot of fun. Um, oh yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely really cool. So, uh, you know, there's a giant loophole in that don't militarize space. And, and it's the same giant loophole that we have here in, in like the War Powers Act. And that is policing. Um, you know, you could say that you have a Coast Guard or a Space Guard or Space Force uh, and that there's sidearms or some weapons there just for policing or for safety, you know, the space is a big place. Most of us believe in aliens. Who knows? You know, uh, we need some protection. That's not militarizing. It, these are, these have dual purposes. Um, you know, I, I, who, who's possibly going to adjudicate these things? I mean, I, you know, I guess you, there'd have to be some sort of 
Hague court, some sort of international tribunal, and it'd be, a, a, I guess, a question of treaty at that point. Millions of our nation's veterans deal with PTSD every day. VA's PTSD consultation program is easy to use and here to help you treat these veterans. Providers like you can access free consultation with expert clinicians, free continuing education, and free resources to help you assess and treat veterans. To learn more, visit ptsd.va.gov consult. So I think ultimately countries are going to have to agree on a system. I mean, Uncontrol is one. Uh, the United Nations could be a forum for that, uh, potentially. I, I really don't have an answer to that. I, I, I did look a little more detail into the Outer Space Treaty. So, Jeff, what, what I think is interesting is it doesn't prohibit placing of weapons in space. It just prevents the placing of military bases and weapons of mass destruction. So you could place a conventional weapon in space like a, I don't know, a 50 caliber machine gun, mm-hmm. which probably wouldn't be smart because if it shot the kinetic energy and Newton's, like, was his third law of motion? Or like that. Anyway, it would probably be bad, bad weapon to use, but you could place a conventional weapon in space according to at least what I'm looking at. Interesting. Um, and apparently there's a, a huge field of inquiry into ASATs, anti-satellite weapons. Have you heard about that? Yes, I, that? I have. I mean, they've got things like just like nets and claws, you know, basically what you would think are, you know, medieval primitive weapons, except once they're in space, they're high tech. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, yeah, whole interesting field. I Right now, as it stands, I think if there's an incident in space, the first place anyone's going to go is country to country. And if the two countries aren't friendly or talking, the only other forum is the UN, which, as we've seen, will probably have some kind of resolution that what one country did was bad and the other country did was also bad and it won't fix anything. So right now, I think space is the wild west of uh, is the frontier. It is <laughs> for law, economics, and uh, weaponization. It is. Uh... The one thing I guess we can look at in the recent past and be happy about, and you know, I'm recording this July 2023, so that's what recent means in case somebody listens to it way down the road. But right now there is a war where Russia has invaded Ukraine and Ukraine is fighting back. Uh, and in the midst of this, uh, there's the International Space Station, and which is Russian under Russian jurisdiction at this point. And there were American astronauts there and Russian astronauts. And the Russian astronauts made sure that the American astronauts, you know, were, were partnered and, you know, got home safely and the new astronauts were able to come aboard and the space station was able to resupply. So it was basically the law of the sea. You know, you, you have to help anyone in distress, um, though not the law of the sea with the salvage law, because the, in, in the sea, the, anything, the, anything can be salvaged. Um, and there's all sorts of strange sub-laws on there, like privateering, et cetera. It sounds like under the laws of space, you must return it uh, to the, the home country, though I imagine that hasn't been tested much or, or you know, it's hard to prove what's been returned and not returned since it's destroyed and it's debris and you'd have to get there on the ground. And uh, if anything's existing of value, I'm sure that could be disappeared fairly easily. Um, well, so did you see the, the July 6th, 2022 article where they were spreading anti-Ukraine propaganda from the space station. Um, remind me, I don't know if I saw it, saw it or not. I, I just I just found this while you were talking. It's interesting. Russian cosmonauts spread anti-Ukraine propaganda from space station. 
uh, Russia's Federal Space Agency shared a pair of images with Kazanov on the ISS brandishing flags of the Luhansk People's Republic and Donetsk People's Republic, two Russian separatist territories in Ukraine. And this is July 2022. Right. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, sort of interesting. So, space is getting politicized. Yeah, sure. Or it already was, but it's getting overtly politicized. Right. Well, satellites are 22,000 miles up. I think the space station is 24,000 miles up, if I'm not mistaken. And I might be, but whatever it is, it's, they're well above that 60,000 feet uh, right. uh, considerably. They're about a third of the way to the, the no, yeah, and then about the tenth of the way to the moon. That's what, about a quarter of a million miles away, generally. Um, yeah. Problem with the problem with space and the people in space is they talk in that crazy thing called the metric system, and you know that's that's not English, so it's very difficult for me to do the translation. Plus, it depends. Actually, the moon's orbit is pretty pretty stable with ours. The the distance doesn't change all that much, um, which is uh, one of the very many interesting things about the moon. All right, so forget about the game about uh, extrapolating to space. We, you know, we know it's the wild west. I've got tons of shows on that. Luckily, we've had shows with air traffic controllers and with General Merlin, the reason I asked you about it is he talked to us about how the airport worked, especially with regards to the international terminal, because that's sort of what we were focusing on. Um, what happens if a crime is committed in in the air, in international airs? Who's who's responsible? Who has jurisdiction? How, how does what that work out? You know, it doesn't. I guess it doesn't matter what the crime is. Let's just say it's a felony. Okay, so. Um... Whose aircraft is it on? <laughs> okay, well, let, let's just keep it simple. Let's say it's American Airlines, so it's an American airline. Okay. So the country whose aircraft the felony happens on, generally speaking, has jurisdiction. Okay. So uh, there's something called the Tokyo Convention in 1963. But basically, if you're on an American airplane and you stab somebody, you end up going to an American jail. Okay. Um, I mean, that's... Uh, so if it's a hijacking... Um, then any country that ends up being dragged into the, you know, the, the hijacking, like if you land in one country and make threats there and you're holding people hostage on an American airline, then you've got two countries involved and two countries that have the rights to prosecute and all of that stuff. But generally speaking, if you're in the middle of, I don't know, the Atlantic Ocean and you stab somebody on an American airline's uh, flight, you're going to end up, you might, when you land in London or wherever, you're going to be, be taken into custody by the British police, but you'd get extradited to the U.S. and end up in American jail. So the FBI flies over and picks you up, or or whomever it is. Whoever they send, yeah, I don't know if they send the FBI. Maybe it's the FBI. Yeah, whatever. You watch more of those TV shows than me. <laughs> <laughs> somebody goes and gets the guy, or the British send something to somebody or the matter. But yeah, it's, it's it's the country of the aircraft. Okay, so it's not the person's uh, state of origin or anything. Okay. Nope. Uh, and is the captain of the aircraft like the chief law enforcement officer? They can they can marry someone. They're basically like sort of the king of their craft. So that's actually called the PIC or pilot in command. And the most important piece of that is not so much rights but responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So um, they do have a lot of rights, but their principal responsibility is not just if you're the PIC, whether it's my little teeny Cirrus four seater aircraft or a. 400 seat, 747, whatever it is, you're responsible for everything. The maintenance being done correct. I mean, you have AMPs and you have people who do all that, but you're responsible for everything that happens in the flight, for the safety, for the crew doing things, all of that happy stuff. Uh, what rights do you have? So 
you have um, you're in charge of telling people they can be restrained. You're in charge of protecting the safety of the people on the aircraft. You're in charge of delivering those people to the authorities. Uh, you can ask any crew member or passenger to help you with any of those things. So basically, if you're the guy, if you're the pilot in command, you're in charge of everything that does or does not happen on the aircraft and responsible for it. Is that similar to like a sea captain as well? I, I yes, know. except that I don't I don't know about the marrying rights. I don't know if the captain of an aircraft can marry someone. I've never heard that. But, okay, well, that's uh, pr- with the exception of that. I assume it's pretty much the same as a sea captain. But the well, PIC, I think it's take a sea captain's rights and responsibilities and duties and put them on steroids because you're now at forty five thousand feet. And there's only so many people that can actually fly that aircraft. So the pilot in command has a lot more authority and responsibility than a sea captain, in my view. I I remember after 9-11, obviously, planes were hijacked, and there was talk about pilots being armed. Are, are pilots able to be armed? I know they didn't really want to be, um, but are they able to? In, in, a, in, a, in a typical commercial or cargo vessel, obviously not a military vessel. I mean... In a cargo vessel, absolutely. Uh, and I, I, as far as I know, any pilot that wants to be armed, uh, or flight engineers or navigators, anybody who's on an aircraft that wants to be armed can be armed. There was a program after 9-11 called the Federal Flight Deck Officer Program. And, uh, you know, basically allows anybody who qualifies. I think there's a qualification through TSA. I'm not 100% sure how that works. But I know they can be armed, yes. Okay. A little bit more generic or simple, maybe it's not, but you know, everybody who's looked at the airports and you've seen sort of fly paths, they always go in these wavy lines that look sort of like the jet streams, you know, and then or current charts. Um, you know, it's it's rarely a straight path. Who determines those flight paths? How is that through treaty? Is that by custom? I mean, a lot of it's in international air. What depends on where you're going and <laughs> depends on who you are. So if you are flying, and it depends on how you fly it. So if I am flying from Washington, D.C. to Naples, Florida, that's where I used to go to see my parents, and I am flying IFR, instrument flight rules, I determine my own plan ahead of time where I'm going to fly to, and I file it, and I am controlled the whole time I'm on IFR, instrument plan. So if visibility is low, I have to be on that. And, the, and I get passed from regional control center to regional control center, and they tell me where to be and what to do. If I take off from Leesburg and I'm on an IFR plan, instrument flight rules plan, and I see it's, and I get above the clouds and it's beautiful, I can cancel that plan and I can fly VFR basically wherever I want to get to where I want to go. Um, so uh, in the U.S., depending on if you're a commercial aircraft, same thing. You fly a flight plan and you're generally following that flight plan. Uh, and if you get handed off from control center to control center as you traverse the country, and if a control tower says, we've got to divert you for traffic, or we're going to divert you for a storm, or you see a storm they don't see, I've called many times the um, con- whoever's controlling me at the time, say it's Washington Center, and I'm flying near DC. I'll say, hey, there's a thunderstorm ahead of me. I can see it. I'm going to take a five-minute uh, diversion to a uh, heading of 180 degrees. And they'll say, okay, approved, five minutes of 180 or whatever. And you'll just turn off your pre-approved course if you're on an instrument plan. If you're on a VFR plan, you see that little thundercloud, you just turn to the right and fly around it. So that's in the U.S. When you're traveling overseas, same thing, except you're flying a flight plan with the FAA. They're coordinating with, uh, I don't know, say it's 
the UK. They're coordinating with their aviation authority to land in the UK. And generally, you'll see a flight path. You've heard of the great circle routes, so like ships, if you want to bring it back to maritime. You know how ships don't go straight from uh, Boston over to London, like in a straight line? They go kind of up, like towards Newfoundland and then Greenland and down. That's because right. the Earth is a ball. And just like on the ocean, in the air, the shortest line between two points on a ball is in an arc. Um, and so they, so commercial carriers are trying to figure out the fastest, least expensive way based not just on distance, but also based on the winds at the flight levels they are at. So there may be winds blowing at 100 miles an hour at 25,000 feet and 200 miles an hour at 40,000 feet against them. And they may want to fly lower or may want to fly in a different area because of where the winds are, because that greatly affects the cost of fuel and how quickly you get there. Right. So all of those things come into play. So that's where you see squiggly lines and flight paths that might not make sense to you, but they might be diverting. You've heard this. You've been sitting in a commercial aircraft and like, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to hit an area of turbulence. Those pilots have already called ahead and say, hey, we're getting some moderate turbulence, which moderate turbulence is like you're bouncing up and down in your seat pretty hard. Right. They've already asked for a diversion or they've already asked to, to climb or descend to find smoother air. Mm -hmm. So that's you'll see those wiggly flight lines because pilots are always trying to make it better not just for the passengers, but it's much more comfortable for a pilot not to be slammed around their cabin too. So that's what's happening. Okay, so that makes sense. So it's it's it could be different every day or even during the course of the same day. It could be different in the middle of a flight. I mean, you could file a flight plan from here to London and divert 10 times because of storm cells or weather or turbulence or traffic, any of those things. Well, Jimmy from Australia, if you are listening to this show, you should be because that question was for you and it was just answered. Um, yep. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, yep. Oh, my goodness. I, I Oh, so pretty much everyone in the air traffic, at least in the United States, I'm not sure about the world, but I believe pilots, uh, the uh, flight attendants, the maintenance, even the, the stevedores, the, the, the uh, ground control, uh, not ground control, the uh, baggage carriers. It, they're all covered by unions, correct? Uh, it, depending on the country, but yes, there are unions for all of those things. And But not every pilot or every baggage handler is a member of the union. Okay, so it's not they, mandatory. There are pretty pretty strong unions for each of those groups okay. in the U.S. Now, is, is that uh, in concert with the Department of Transportation or the FAA, or uh, or is it, is, is it just private? Well, so all it, it's not under... Like every union, unions aren't under the auspices of any kind of uh, federal government. They're under the auspices of their own, you know, charters, uh, charter, their own charter as a union, just like the AFL-CIO or the teachers union or mm -hmm. TIA-CREF, all of those organizations. The aviation one that I know off the top of my head is ALPA, ALPA, which is the Airline Pilot Owners, Airline Pilots Association, which is a huge union of airline pilots. There are others for flight attendants and for safety specialists. And there's definitely an air traffic controllers union. I think that one is like almost 100% participation. But they're all independent of each other and of the FAA. And it's basically collective bargaining. I remember in the Reagan years, Reagan filed all, fired all the air traffic controllers. Is that something that could still that could happen now? I mean, it could, yeah. If there, if there was some kind of air traffic controller... Uh, issue and they wanted to uh, the union you know essentially yeah just like anything else yeah of course it could okay and then all air traffic controllers are federal employees so that's a little bit different 
Well, not all. There are contract towers in the United States. Mm -hmm. So a good example is at KJYO Leesburg, where we're doing the remote tower. Uh, those FAA controllers were contract controllers. Contract controllers are former air traffic controllers who've gone private, who the FAA pays a company to pay to work as air traffic controllers, as opposed to being employed by the FAA directly. But most of them are not contracts. I imagine the National Labor Relations Board has a role. If there's some problem, they can mediate. Uh, yeah, I'm not a union law expert by any stretch, but yeah, I would imagine the NLRB plays some role in dealing with unions. Okay. Well, I want to be respectful of your time and also my duties, which start in a few minutes. Um, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? Um, I mean, I guess you, if you were interested in how airspace relates to uh, aviation, uh, to maritime law, uh, I could talk about that for two seconds. Sure. I think there's a ton. I mean, but I think they both, you were pointing it out. Uh, they're both international. They both involve the equivalent of a pilot in command or a captain. Uh, they both have international regulatory bodies of some kind that oversee things administratively. Uh, they both have extensive safety regulations. And they're both moving goods and people across borders. The only fact most stuff is moving that way, uh, I think, in the world. So, and there's liability and insurance issues that are unique because things happen outside of the country of the stuff. So if you own aircraft, stuff happens in other countries. And if you own ships, stuff happens in other countries with your ship that you own here in the U.S. So right. I think those are kind of uh, very similar issues. And I think more and more environmental issues are going to become a big, a big and interesting area of law and economic and regulation for both maritime and aviation. Yeah, that's probably something I'm going to have to explore at some point is more environmental law, but I'm sort of afraid to open up that can because it might be endless. And even though a content creator always wants content, <laughs> I don't know if I want more of these endless voyages like space law has turned into. But anyway, uh, Tom, please tell the folks where they can find and follow you if you want to be found and followed. Uh, so you can find me on dblawyers.com. Uh, and please, if you get a chance, I have a podcast too. It's different than Jeff's podcast. It's the Black Letter podcast. You can get an iTunes or Spotify, and it's a business-focused, experiential podcast. Yeah, it's um, it's great. Yeah, it. On Monday, he does what's called the, the Monday Minute. It's, it's sometimes it's more like three or four minutes, but it's sort of like a hot topic issue. Tom is a very concise speaker, very good speaker, as I think you've heard. And then um, usually on Thursdays, there's a longer-form show, often interviewing uh, somebody in business. Um, in fact, Jeff. Yes, appropriate to your, your listeners. So we've got a three-part series interviews with the chief counsel of the FAA, Mark Nichols, who's a friend of mine from law school. I uh, was appointed by Joe Biden. He is the first African-American uh, uh, homosexual man to be in that position, which is a huge deal for diversity. And, uh, you know, uh, his interview is fantastic and his story is great. So uh, if you get a chance listeners and you're interested in aviation, Mark talks a lot about the FAA and his career trajectory uh, to that position. Yep. Well, I, I've heard all the shows for the, uh, probably the past year or so. So yeah. I, oh, awesome. Uh, yep. Def definitely everyone check, check check those out. And you can also check out some of our prior shows, which touched on aviation law in some more particulars, but this was a larger umbrella and I can't thank Tom enough for it. Uh, thank you for giving some of your time to us today. 
And everyone, check out the Black Letter Podcast if you need legal advice. Certainly contact Dunlop Bennett and Ludwig. Uh, Tom gave you his uh, information. Um, And as always, the caveat is this show is for information and entertainment purposes only. Don't rely on it for your legal advice. Uh, Everything is individualized and case by case. And the lawyer's favorite words are truthful, and that is, it depends. So thank you for listening to Garden Views, and uh, you'll hear from us next week. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Thanks guys. Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars? I could really use a wish right now, wish right now, wish right now. Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars? I could really use a wish right now, wish right now, wish right now. Yeah, I could use a dream or a genie or a wish to go back to a place much simpler than this. After all the party and it's smashing and crashing And all the glitz and the glam and the fashion And all the pandemonium and all the madness There comes a time where you fade to the blackness And when you're staring at that phone in your lap And you hoping but them people never call you back But that's just how the story unfolds You get another hand soon after you fold And when your plans unravel in the sand What would you wish for if you had one chance? So we're playing airplane, sorry I'm late I'm on my way so don't close that gate If I don't make that, then I switch my flight And I'll be right back at it by the end of the night that airplane the night sky Like shooting stars I can really use a wish right now Wish right now, wish right now Before this was a job, before I got paid, before it ever mattered what I had in my bank. Yeah, back when I was trying to get a tip at Subway, and back when I was rapping for the hell of it. But nowadays, we rapping to stay relevant. I'm guessing that if we can make some wishes out of airplanes, then maybe, yo, maybe I'll go back to the days. Before the politics, there we go, the rap game. And back when ain't nobody listened to my mixtape. And back before I tried to cover up my slang. But this is whole decade of what's up, Bobby Ray. So can I get a wish to end the politics and get back to the music that started this shit? So here I stand, and then again I say, I'm hoping we can make some wishes out of airplanes. Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars? I can really use a wish right now. Wish right now. Wish right now. Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars? I can really use a wish right now. Wish right now. Wish right now.
calling all unexpected seekers. The time is here for this year's Capital Fringe Festival, an annual celebration of theater and expression taking place July 12th to the 23rd in Georgetown. Whether you feel like belly laughing at lighthearted humor, grappling with life's toughest challenges, or toe tapping to the legends of bluegrass music, there's something for every audience member at this live uncensored event. Come laugh cry and make a scene with us. For more information or to book your tickets, visit georgetowndc.com forward slash fringe today. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! <sighs> and this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. 